Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. My guest today is David Marples, who has written a book about the Euro Mind Down. A protest that was in 2014, but today we're going to talk about making of modern Russia. The title is, of course, inspired by Timothy Snyder's recent lecture on Yale courses on YouTube, which is called The Making of Modern Ukraine, which I highly recommend checking out. And instead of asking the usual question that I usually ask, as a Russian historian on modern Russia, it must be exciting to, for lack of a better word, to live in time like this with the invasion of Ukraine and the Ukrainian war. Yeah, it's exciting, but it's also very troubling as well, because, you know, we're seeing a state that could have gone in several different directions, but taking what might be seen as a very violent route um, to the future by invading its closest neighbor and um, a much smaller state and a state without nuclear weapons. And, um, you know, I don't think Russian history had to end up that way, but this is the way it went under Vladimir Putin at the end of his, well, towards the end of his long years as president. Um, so I, I find it very, very worrying at the moment. Although Russia, of course, is in the headlines every day. Uh, I also study Ukraine and Belarus. And um, from their perspective as well, these are disturbing times um, in both countries. One is occupied and the other is dragged into the war by being sort of the base for the Russian troops that went into Ukraine and is trying to resist sending its own troops there uh, under a regime that is extremely unpopular and was almost forced out two years ago. So we don't come back to the Ukrainian invasion or special military operation, as Putin put it, of course, but... I always said, I said this since the beginning, and not on the podcast, but personally, privately, that would you say we are in a new phase of a second Cold War before we, just before we begin with the 90s? Would you, would you agree that we are entering a new phase of Cold War? In a sense, yeah, although it's very different because the we're not now talking about ideologies, um, you know, say, let's say a communism versus a market economy and democracy. I mean, Russia has quite simply become a market economy. It's a world economic power, uh, which exports oil and gas widely. It's not equivalent, I think, to the Soviet Union in many different aspects. The Soviet Union was a federation, uncomfortable at times for sure, but nevertheless a federation of many different nationalities, over a 100, and 15 of those had their own republics, and although they were not given any real power, you did see in different periods of the Soviet Union that, first of all, there were times when they were allowed to develop national cultures and languages, and then there were times of severe repression 
from Moscow, for example, in the 1930s. Mm. But periods of cooperation, as in the Great Patriotic War, when all these nationalities, or most of them, took some role in it, and some of them took very serious roles. So the Cold War that developed afterwards, I think, was simply that, a Cold War. And this is not really a Cold War in that one state has invaded another state, and a state whose borders it has recognized on more than one occasion, but then decided that these uh, treaties made in the past are no longer valid and has chosen to broke them, break them uh, for various reasons. And we can discuss that later, of course, yeah. but I, I don't see it as a, a direct equivalent to the Cold War, but it's certainly mm. hostility that we've not seen in the past in independent, between independent Russia and the Western world. So let's begin with the 90s and the breakup of the Soviet Union and several post-Soviet unions, such as Ukraine, of course, get independence at last. So what was the impact? Of, and while the world was celebrating this, the Western world, it, w- it would be a miserable time if in the future, especially in the 90s, Russia. So let's talk about the impact of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right. I mean, many people in the West got excited about the Gorbachev period, because in that period, 1985 to 91, you began to see significant changes that were simply unprecedented in the Soviet past. Um, For example, Glasnost or Frankness saw the development of criticisms, free speech, Um, media that became more and more outspoken and would start to uncover things that had never been discussed before. Uh, All these were seen as very positive things in the West. And ultimately, Gorbachev decided to curtail the power of the Communist Party, which had held everything together. And once he did that, there was really no way backward, I think. The, The state that existed previously could no longer exist because there was nothing to keep it together. The national republics had their own agenda. And within the Soviet Union itself, uh, once Boris Yeltsin, who was uh, initially a friend of Gorbachev in the mid-80s, but eventually the two fell far apart, once Boris Yeltsin acquired the presidency of Russia within the Soviet Union in June of 1991, That, I think, was a decisive event because then there were really two powers in the Kremlin, Gorbachev for the Soviet Union and Yeltsin for the Russian Republic. And after the putsch of 1991, when a group of hardliners tried to go back more or less in time and take us back to the Soviet system, uh, it was it was rejected. Uh, Gorbachev was arrested at that time and then subsequently released three days later. But once he came back to Moscow, it it was quite clear that power had moved from Gorbachev, from the president of the Soviet Union, to the president of Russia. The Communist Party was uh, stripped of its power. The KGB was dissolved, uh, although it returned in a different form, but nevertheless, it was dissolved for a time. And suddenly... Uh, Yeltsin was the commander of the armed forces of Russia, which made up 75% of the Soviet Union, and gradually took more and more of Russian resources into his own hands. So by the time the three republics that had signed, well, three of the republics that had signed the 1922 agreement, which formed the Soviet Union, uh, Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine, uh, 
the fourth one was Transcaucasia, as it was then called, met at a hunting lodge in Belarus, in Bielowieża, and declared the formation of a Commonwealth of Independent States rather than a revised union, which Gorbachev would, would have been trying to get. This meant this was simply a formal understanding that power had moved from one power center to another in Moscow. Uh, and at the same time, the economy of the Soviet Union was in a very difficult situation. They were re requiring imports of food from places like Germany. The reforms that Gorbachev had carried out were half-hearted. And he clearly was reluctant to go to a full-scale market economy. And at that time, um, I would say that Yeltsin and his advisors were very much influenced by um, the American market system. I remember Jeffrey Sachs, the economist, was in Moscow trying to introduce shock therapy. And in early 1992, when Russia began its first steps as an independent state, immediately shock therapy was introduced, which suddenly meant that all the safety nets of the Soviet system where people were not unemployed, they had a secure job, they had secure pensions. This all evaporated overnight. And quite suddenly, with the privatization, many people became impoverished. And Yeltsin himself was not really equipped, I felt, to deal with this change of situation. Suddenly, he was almost completely dependent on the West and reliant on Western help which came slowly and it came reluctantly because the West was very much supportive of Gorbachev and wanted Gorbachev to remain in power and gradually had to get used to the idea that Yeltsin was now the new leader. Now, so, something that we spoke about before, sorry if I interrupted you there, but, you, but we spoke before the recording that you were with uh, yourself, you, you personally witnessed from 87 onwards the collapse of the Soviet Union that that must have been really exciting and and again exciting to what me a witness of your personally yeah and I would say that it was completely unexpected um I mean I wasn't especially naive and I'd published a book in 1991 about Ukraine which predicted Ukraine would become independent before too long it seemed to be fairly obvious but I would say that the suddenness of the collapse of the Soviet Union took a lot of Western analysts by surprise. It seemed to be fairly stable. There didn't seem to be any prospect of it just collapsing. But the question, I think, really was people underestimated um, what had happened under Gorbachev, and they underestimated the desire of the Soviet republics to develop their independent states. And I think in that period, it was quite evident because... The protests that were taking place in Moscow, many pro-Yeltsin protests, 500,000 people in the streets, for example, complaining about unemployment, coal miners' strikes that took place in 1989 and 1990, and, and to some extent again in 91, strikes of steel workers. The place was in chaos. But at the same time, it was still like a debating society in Moscow, you could more or less meet anybody at that time. You could talk to people who you would never have dreamed of talking to before, I mean, well-known dissidents, for example, who could travel there. And the interesting thing about those last years of the Soviet Union, let's say from 88 
to 90 at least, was that Moscow was actually leading the way in Glasnost and these political changes. The republics were well behind. I remember in Ukraine, it was a very repressive state at the same time. And Ukrainian, let's say, dissidents or intellectuals were traveling to Moscow to make the case to get rid of their own party leader because he was a relic from the past. And this was, I mean, they felt very frustrated with the lack of change there. But Gorbachev was the one pushing, but there were people pushing even harder. The problem, I believe, also was, and it was evident in that period, is that Gorbachev didn't really have any long-term economic strategy. He thought he did. I mean, he began with what he called perestroika, and we're going to restructure Soviet industry. They introduced, for example, cooperatives in um, in some of the towns, joint ventures. But he didn't really want to go full-scale capitalist, and he didn't want to destroy the country. He wanted to keep it together. And he seemed to be powerless at some point to stop the forces around him from going their own way. And in 1990, in early 1990, he actually started to replenish his ministries with old guard communists, people who were hardliners, people who wanted to go back to the past. So that all the people who carried out the putsch in August 1991 were, in fact, Gorbachev appointees. They were people he put in those positions rather than reformers. The reformers, by 1991... Had so left. long ago, you had the famous tank scene rolling down the street, right, at firing. Yes, yes. And Edward Shevardnadze, who was the foreign minister for a time under Gorbachev, he'd left office by that time. Alexander Yakovlev, who was known as the father of Glasnost, he'd also left office. So you found that the reformers had left, and Gorbachev was now surrounded by these old-style hardliners. And I believe that in August 1991, these people actually thought that Gorbachev would support them. They thought that he would accept that we had to go back and all these reforms must end and the Communist Party must be revived and brought back into full authority. But by then it was too late because I think in Moscow and elsewhere, uh, St. Petersburg as well, people didn't want to go back. They'd seen enough to know um, that the Soviet Union was both corrupt and repressive as a state and that there have been terrible crimes committed in the past that they knew more about now than they'd known about in their in their youth, say. So, um, you know, to watch it happening was fascinating, but I would say that, you know, when you're an eyewitness to events, you don't go with the events. You simply see what's around you, and you don't really predict the future. So right up until about... September or October 1991, I didn't think the system would necessarily collapse. Um, by that period in 1991, I didn't see how it could be saved because it looked like there was so much desire for the republics to go their own way. The Baltic states had virtually gone. They'd all declared independence earlier. And by August 1991, Ukraine, Belarus and many of the states had declared independence as well. And then it was a question of what is going to replace this vast empire, this vast communist empire after it's fallen. So perhaps, you know, we could expect a period of chaos, 
But I will say it was not particularly violent as far as complete changes of regime go. It became violent in some regions. But at the time, in December 1991, it was fairly peaceful. There was no rioting in the streets. There was no fighting in the streets, for example. Nobody came forward to defend the Soviet Union. So Gorbachev just resigned on Christmas Day, um, and then he was gone. Now, I was watching some clips in preparation for this episode on YouTube yesterday, and where I found all babushkas where they were selling everything they could find because the market economy had crashed, and it was so expensive for bread, everything was food was expensive. Like we talked about, work was hard to come by this at this point in the nineties, and. It really seemed like at first they were cheering. You should see flags on the street. The people were happy that finally the new rebirth of Russia, if you will, was had become come, come back in the form of freedom. But they kind of at the as I started some interviews as well, and they were like older people were like, "Is this freedom? You know, we we like fared the way that it used to be." And people were really kind of skeptical in to get the new freedom that they would gain by the collapse of the Soviet Union. Right. And the uh, inverse side of that is that while these people were selling their own goods on the streets and their little kiosks on the streets selling goods and the currency was uh, constantly falling, um, there were a smaller group of people who made a great amount of money very quickly Uh, particularly from the sale of Russian resources by the government at low prices in order to remain solvent itself. And these were people, sometimes they had backgrounds in the party, sometimes they had backgrounds in crime, but they had amassed enough resources by the 1990s to make these initial purchases and then become extremely rich as the value of the raw materials increased dramatically. And we call them oligarchs, and they probably made up about 8% of Russian society, no more than that. And they developed their almost like their own empires. They became rich by owning um, metallurgical enterprises, oil enterprises, gas enterprises, diamonds, whatever, and then once they owned them, they tried to maintain them, sometimes by force. Many of them had their own security forces who uh, sometimes got involved with other security forces in Moscow. So while the bulk of the people are really struggling and blaming every, all their problems on the switch to a market economy that happened so quickly, they also are seeing in the streets very wealthy people who have massive resources uh, far more, in fact, than the original party hierarchy had when they had their special stores and their cars and their chauffeurs, etc. It's on a bigger scale. And at the at the hub is the president who becomes weaker and weaker. I mean, in 1993, in October, a dispute between Yeltsin and his parliament ended when the army sided firmly with the president fired on the parliament, killed about 150 people, and those who remained there uh, were arrested. And this ensured that Russia was not going to have a parliamentary system. It was going to have a strong president um, and the potential for wielding great authority there 
vastly increased after October 1993. But Yeltsin himself was physically, he had many problems. He had heart problems. Um, He was never in good health, even in the late 1980s. But by the early 1990s, he was constantly recuperating from some operation. He was spending more time in sanatoria than he was in Moscow. And it meant that Russia depended very heavily on his selection of prime minister. And the prime ministers changed quite frequently as well. And I would say the culmination point, and I was in Moscow at the time, was the summer of 1998, when everything suddenly collapsed. Several banks simply disappeared after that. The ruble plummeted against the dollar, and there was a financial meltdown that we'd, <clears throat> on a scale, never seen before. And I remember sitting in a in a hotel room in Moscow. I'd spent the summer in Siberia, but I came to Moscow at the end of it. And I was waiting for my taxi to the airport. And there was an exchange office right opposite. And the ruble initially, when I sat down, was was at six to the dollar. By the time my taxi arrived, it was 30 to the dollar. Wow. It was about an hour later. And I watched That's it crazy. Up. And at the same That's... time, all the um, machines um, dispensing money shut down. As I mentioned, several banks shut down. And the only way to purchase stuff at that particular time was with dollars if you had dollars you could be quite affluent you could live very well and you could survive but without them you were in trouble and most russians had a a very rough time in august of 1991 oil prices and gas prices which had made up the bulk of the valuable exports uh, they crashed at the same time so you got very low prices for energy products, which is the basis of the Russian economy. At the same time that there was a run on the banks, currency collapse, a president who was really too feeble to do very much, and everything dependent on on the government or the cabinet at the time to deal with that situation. And Russia had a a number of prime ministers, and I I wouldn't go into them in any detail because they weren't around very long. But I found that Yeltsin sort of dealt with people that he knew. Primakov was one, Chernomirodin was another. But in 1991, earlier, he appointed Kiryanka, one of the youngest um, prime ministers. He immediately fired him in this crisis and tried to bring Chernomirodin back. And everybody in the parliament revolted against him, said they didn't want him. And he ended up with Primakov, uh, who was much more stable. But didn't last very long. And the prime ministers were changing all the time um, until the appointment of Vladimir Putin. Putin was like the last prime minister that Yeltsin appointed in 1991 uh, in the fall of the year. And Putin was really unknown, I think. I mean, he, he was better known in St. Petersburg than he was in Moscow. And he'd made his name, if you like, as a, as a reliable a KGB agent in East Germany who then started to work for the governor of St. Petersburg, uh, Anatoly Sobchak, and had got a reputation, I think, as a very reliable person, not particularly inventive, not particularly exciting, but just someone who could bring a bit of stability back to Russia. 
when Yeltsin, as he decided to retire by the end of 1991. But I'm sorry for interrupting you again. But yeah. uh, how well is Yeltsin remembered today by, by the Russian people? Is he remembered well or is he kind of looked down upon as, as kind of was in... Well, I think the, the Russians, first of all, um, remember Yeltsin for two things, for the for the for the putsch, for standing up to the the plotters in the putsch when he sort of rescued Russia from the chance of going back to the past. He was the first president. But second, and overwhelmingly, I would say that Yeltsin is remembered as being president over a time of complete chaos. Mm. And this is how he's associated today. Gorbachev brought down the Soviet Empire. He's heartily, he was heartily disliked uh, while he was alive. He only died last year. Yeltsin, perhaps, is regarded with even more contempt because he was the person who really brought the system to the brink of collapse and allowed these oligarchs to amass a lot of power, didn't attend to the needs of the, of the Russian people, and left Russia much weaker than it had been at any time in in recent history, so I would say very negatively, regarded very negatively. So Yeltsin died last year, as you mentioned, and Putin chose not to go to his funeral. And considering that you said that he kind of made Putin help make Putin's career, what you made, what did you make of Putin not attending his funeral? Um, just one thing: it was Gorbachev who died last oh, year. Oh, sorry, Yeltsin. Yeah, Yeltsin died in two thousand six. Yeah, that's um, my mistake. It, but the question is pertinent. I mean, I think Putin does not want to be associated with the past. He doesn't want to be associated with the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he regards as a tragedy. And therefore, he kept his distance from the legacy of Gorbachev and being identified with Gorbachev. I mean, I think the two of them occasionally saw eye to eye. I mean, there are some examples from Gorbachev's post-Soviet past where he and Putin had long discussions. But ultimately... I would say Putin didn't want to be too close to him, didn't want to be seen that way. I'm sorry for going away really railing a little bit there, but let's go, go back to Putin and the rise of Putin. So he comes from Moscow, and how how does he deal with this change from you know, being in St. Petersburg to the capital of the new Russian Empire and vastly more power? Yeah, well, there's one event that I should have mentioned earlier, but didn't. And that is that in 1994, in December, Yeltsin started a war against the Republic of Chechnya, which had declared independence at the end of December 1991. And this was a disastrous war where the Russians were simply ambushed from the hills. The, the, the Chechens refused to fight a direct war. They used guerrilla warfare. And Russia naively sent in raw recruits um, who certainly died in large numbers. And Russia responded with very harsh policies, practically raised the city of Grozny, the Chechen capital, to the ground. But ultimately, were obliged to make a humiliating treaty in 1997 by which they recognized that Chechnya and Russia could continue as they were um, at the end of 91. Putin began by addressing this. And before long, he returned 
and a second war was fought with Chechnya, where Russia used much, I would say, much more advanced military policies, but also much more cruelty. And Putin himself dressed in military uniform. He went to Chechnya. He was seen as a man of action. And just the fact that you had a president who was not constantly um, being rehabilitated in a sanatorium was a refreshing change for Russians. The second thing is that by the time Putin took power, um, oil and gas prices had recovered and actually even skyrocketed. So suddenly the economy began to recover. And that was perhaps the biggest single factor in why Putin became so popular so quickly. Putin began also by bringing his former uh, KGB associates from St. Petersburg. He'd also, for a brief time, been head of the Federal Security Bureau that took over from the KGB, the FSB. And these people as well were given positions of real power. So Putin created a new power structure. He also um, decided to rein in the most notorious oligarchs, most unpopular ones, really, but the most powerful ones, uh, people who own the largest oil companies, people who own the TV, the airlines, etc., and informed them that either they could stay out of politics or he would be coming for them. Um, two of them, uh, Berezovsky and... You have to have to say that to someone that rich. Though. I, I mean, I'm not the biggest Putin fan... But, you know, that is spalsy to, to go straight to someone who can had a, might have had the power to bring you, yourself down and just say, I'm coming for you or stay, stay out. Yeah, well, I, there's no question that um, he was very determined. I mean, he saw where the power sources were and decided to eliminate them right from the outset. And that included people like Berezovsky, Boris Berezovsky, the notorious tycoon who moved to London, um, Gusinski, who moved to Spain. But there were others who decided to stay with Putin. Roman Abramovich is one example, who um, also owned, owned an oil company, eventually ended up owning Chelsea Football Club in London. Um, he was the governor of Chukotka in the Far East for a while. But he was a loyalist with Yelp, with Putin, and, and he treated his own loyalists very well. Those who tried to cross him were, you know, sent to prison camps, um, arrested. It didn't really matter, but they were eliminated as a power structure. But that's not to say that the oligarch system disappeared. It didn't. It's just that the oligarchs who emerged in the 2000s when Putin became president, um, were loyal to him and to the regime. And if they were loyal to him, he didn't care how much wealth they amassed. Now, the I, remember, I remember that watching a video with Biden next to Putin, and he said that he doesn't see any evil in Putin at all, and that, that kind of aged well. But how, how did the West, Western world welcome welcome Putin to rise to power? How did they view him? Did they view him with concern or that this shouldn't be someone we can work with? Well, initially, I think there was some hope that they could work with Putin. I mean, in 2001, there was a common cause, that is, 
Putin's war on Chechnya coincided with the United States' war on terrorism. I mean, they'd had the 9-11 event that same year when, when George W. Bush came into office. And this was about, what, less than nine months after he came into power. You had the 9-11, the attack on the World Trade Center, etc. So there seemed to be a common cause. And Putin told the United States they were welcome to come into places like Uzbekistan or wherever, and if they were targeting terrorists. And Putin claimed that they got a common goal, and this seemed to work for a while. But I think gradually Putin began to assert himself more and more, and the event that really seemed to incense Putin was when, with the West's help, the state of Kosovo was formed in in the Balkans, which more or less constituted a second Albanian state in what the Russians saw as Serbian territory, and not only Serbian territory, but historical Serbian territory. And they definitely sided with the Serbs on that issue, as they do today. And Putin saw this as changing the structure of post-war Europe, which had remained untouched since 1945. And he maintained that this was a this was an offence to Russia. It was much more, it seemed, that than the expansion or enlargement, I should say, of NATO that incensed Putin. By 2008, uh, as you know, Putin had served two terms, mm-hmm. and by the constitution of Russia, he had to step down before he could come back for a third term. So there was a kind of interchange. The prime minister, 13 years younger than Putin, Dmitry Medvedev became the president. Putin reverted to the role of prime minister. But I don't think there was much doubt in Russians' mind that it didn't change a whole lot. Putin was the one they still listened to and saw on TV. He was the one pulling the strings. He was pulling the strings. But it was in 2008 that Russia uh, invaded Georgia as well, uh, in its words, to protect two breakaway republics and russia started to well even earlier i would say putin started to denounce the so-called color revolutions that had taken place for example in ukraine in 2004 where the orange revolution took place and putin's favored president yanukovych was defeated in the election by yushchenko after a rerunning of the third round. I and mean, the mass protests forced um, the president of Ukraine, President Kuchma, to authorize a new vote of the third round of the Ukrainian election. And Yushchenko, when he came to power in Ukraine, was quite clearly not favored by Moscow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Medvedev actually broke relations with him um, for a while, uh, but, but particularly over the issue of nationalism, um, Yushchenko making national heroes of anti-Soviet figures from the Second World War. And this is where I saw the beginning of the conflict with Ukraine, um, back from, from the Yushchenko period. Um, it maybe didn't make too much difference because in 2010, there was another election in Ukraine and Yushchenko was replaced by Yanukovych. So he did eventually come to power. And between 2010 and 14, the Ukrainian issue 
receded into the background. But we've already seen, I think, in 2008, Russia beginning to change. But let's still talk briefly before going into the Ukrainian and Euromaidan protests. Um, but I mean, let's talk about Dmitry's reign for briefly. Like, what, what was what was it like under? Even though Putin was pulling the strings, how much power did he really have, Dmitry? He didn't have a, a lot of individual power. It, it's kind of odd because when when Medvedev became president, there was a lot of hope in the West, that he would be a kind of liberal, more democratic figure. He was known to like Western music, for example. He was a much younger figure. Um, All this was quickly, um, the West was quickly disabused of of this idea. Was he popular among the Russian people as well, or was he? Well, he didn't really see much change. I mean, it was more of the same. I don't think people really felt that there'd been a dramatic change when Medvedev became the president. Um, Putin was still giving his broadcasts every week, and there seemed every... It it became more Western, anti-Western. But that was something that had been developing throughout the early part of the 21st century. It just became a little more acute by 2008 to 12. in that period, as we say, there was the war with Georgia where Russian troops actually went into the capital. Russia was clearly supporting the breakaway republics. And in this same period, it was the first time I heard about a plan of a, a possible invasion of Crimea. And this was something, the Crimean issue was something that it came up in the early 90s. There was a breakaway movement in the early 90s. But I don't think Russians generally accepted the idea that Crimea was was part of Ukraine or the Black Sea Fleet was part of Ukraine. Um, In 1997, there'd been a peace treaty between Russia and Ukraine, and Russia got about 83% of the Black Sea Fleet. But it was always felt that Black Sea Fleet, the port of Sevastopol, were clearly Russia. But there was no, no real plan, I think, until about 2008, to change that situation. I would say that um, also it's worth mentioning that there was considerable opposition to Putin coming back to power in 2012. And we saw prior to the elections of that year, mass demonstrations on a scale not seen before and centered around opposition the most prominent figure was Boris Nemtsov, who'd been the governor general um, sorry, <laughs> of Nizhny Novgorod, the town of Nizhny Novgorod uh, in, in the Yeltsin period. He'd been close to Yeltsin. He'd been a deputy prime minister. But now he was more or less accepted as the leader of the breakaway forces. And in 2012, it, it did seem for a time that there may be a possibility of change. But Medvedev announced that Putin was coming back. And when Putin did return, I felt there was a noticeable difference between his first and second terms and his third term, where Russia was gradually moving much more towards an authoritarian state rather than a democratic one. Did you see this problem that it would be more autocratic? As a historian, did you kind of see it coming at this point? 
Well, maybe, but it's also identified with a time where Russia is more stable, the economy is much more secure. They've resolved the Chechen problem. Once uh, Ramzan Kadyrov becomes the Chechen president, he decides, well, he's got a close relationship with Putin. It stabilizes Chechnya. Putin is also... From the early part of his leadership, he divided Russia into regions, seven different regions, each uh, governed by someone appointed by Putin himself. So he's got much more centralized control than Yeltsin had. And it ends a period where the large republics within Russia, the autonomous republics, could really think about having any serious power themselves. The power devolves back to Moscow. And it really makes Russia a much more stable power. And I would say that of all the things that Russians are concerned about in the 90s, it's the lack of stability that's the key one. The idea that Russia is is a weak country with a weak economy, more or less beholden to the West to help it out. This is no longer the case. And Russia is striking up close economic relationships, trading relationships with countries of the European Union, um, as well as with its former allies or communist allies. And it means that there's a relationship developing between Russia and Germany, for example, over the exports of, of oil and gas. And this means that Putin is not really creating great chasms. He's not trying to start wars at that time. He's more or less working for the benefit of the Russian economy, for the for the Russian people. But it is more authoritarian. And gradually, you see corruption on a huge scale, going all the way up to Putin himself, who becomes, in fact, Russia's biggest oligarch. And at the same time, more frequently starts to talk about a reviving the past, that Russia's imperial past or the former Russian empire is no longer seen as a time of exploitation of the masses, but a time of great achievement and glory. And Do you think this- that this has always been Putin's plan like from, from the start, that it gradually kind of evolved to this? I was speaking with my family, actually, my mm. uncle one time, and where we talked about how how long you can when you can be have such power in such a long time, it can kind of screw with your head a little bit. Do you think that is what's slowly happening with Putin right now and back then, or do you think that he always had kind of the idea of reviving the imperialist past to Russia? I think it's more of a recent phenomenon. I didn't see it there at the beginning of in, independence. That's not to say there was not some imperialist thinking. I think for many Russians, the idea, just the idea of an independent Ukraine or Belarus is inconceivable. I mean, they just do not see how that could have taken place and why it should take place. And I don't think that's anything particularly to do with the Russian presidency. It's simply how Russians perceive the past. They've always been an empire. There's not been a period. It's not like the British Empire where Quite clearly, after World War II, they started to give up India and African colonies and things like that. And you could see that coming. There's no particular desire in Britain, for example, 
to retake its empire. It's inconceivable. But the Russian Empire is contiguous, and you've got large numbers of ethnic Russians living outside the Russian Federation. So, for example, 40% of Latvia is made up of ethnic Russians. And that's a natural target for Putin's type of thinking, that we can't abandon these people who've been forced to learn foreign languages, swear allegiance to foreign states, etc. Large numbers of Russians in Ukraine, large numbers in Belarus. And I think this kind of thinking was always there, but it was taken to a more higher pitch or extreme level by Putin from his third term onward. And meanwhile, he has a series of advisors. He has a prime minister who was once the president. But gradually, Putin himself, he has a party in parliament that's completely loyal to him. Even parties in the opposition parties, like the Liberal Democrats, are also loyal to Putin. So for a time, there's really no major opposition party, let's say, on the pro-Western front, pro-Western democracy. All those parties that had a role in the 90s have more or less disappeared off the map now. Um, Yablaka and others. The Communist Party of Russia under Yeltsin formed perhaps the main opposition party, but the Communist Party really is also stripped of power. You've really got the one party in parliament loyal to Russia, loyal to Putin. And so the elections gradually become rit ritualistic, whereby you may get a couple of opposition candidates, but ultimately you see that there's no opposition to Putin. I mean, I mentioned earlier Anatoly Sobchak, the governor of St. Petersburg, who died, I think it was 2000, he died. But his daughter, for example, ran in the last election against Putin. She's a TV announcer. But, you know, the two families are very close, and you know that there's no real possibility of her taking a stand against Putin. And this is the way elections are run. And so Putin is gradually getting more and more, I would say like Stalin, a bit of a cult figure. He's a little bit above um, normal political fray. He doesn't really enter it. He allows other people to debate, perhaps, and he might appoint people Just to... Just not about the, him. Not about him. And he's got people around him who are completely trustworthy. And it's more or less like a pyramidical structure with Putin at the top and his bureaucrats and oligarchs and all the people around him all amassing a lot of wealth. Putin is probably the world's wealthiest man now. He's got about 17 palaces um, he lives like a lord. Is the building one at the moment as well? Like 2020s, uh, they started one giant mansion somewhere. I, I don't. I remember watching some news about it, but I just don't remember where. I just started building one at the moment. Yeah, he seems to have succumbed to the idea of his own personal greatness. Mm. But I think quite recently as well, well, let's go back a little bit. I would say that Putin's decision-making seemed to me fairly rational for quite a long time. I mean, I wouldn't say I agreed with any of it, but it was rational. You could see where he was coming from. In 2022, or even late 2021, that rational thinking seems to disappear. 
And Putin also seems to be more and more distant from his Security Council. I mean, it's it's sort of epitomized by that long table with Putin at one end and the people sitting around at the far end. You know, it reminded me of one of these little hockey tables that you get, you know, where you can play hockey on the long table. Um, he's just miles away from them. I mean, is he is he frightened of getting COVID or something? Or is it actually that he sees himself in quite a different planet from the people in his security council and even from what you see on tv screens they're quite clearly terrified of saying anything to upset putin Mm. and this is not a healthy environment plus putin recently turned 70 years of age and it seems to be a kind of defining point in his career that he's now decided to change the world in the way that he sees it. And the first thing is to occupy and change the government of Ukraine, which he sees as pro-Western, neo-Nazi or whatever. And I don't think the invasion of Ukraine was was perceived as the final step in some some project. I see it as the initial step. And if if that succeeded, if that had succeeded, he would then have gone on to, in, to 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 other things, perhaps Moldova, for example. Whether he would have actually invaded NATO member territory is another matter. And so, you know, Russia suddenly becomes a hostile neighbor. And I visited your country, and I know that in the northern yeah. border, there's there's, there's not re- much really, to separate Russia from Norway, right? There's simply yeah. a river there. My, my um, brother was actually protecting the border from the Russians in his military yeah. service there back in 2015. And you've got the city of Murmansk, you know, just over there yeah. from, from uh, the northern border. But Norway's in NATO. I mean, countries like Finland decided, after all these years of neutrality, to, to join NATO because it was scared of a Russian invasion. You know, that, to me, says a lot that People perceive Russia under Putin now much more differently than they had in the past. I mean, and, I'd rather say, though, I, I try to find it ironic and a little bit funny that Putin was so scared of having a NATO neighbor at the side that he decided yeah. to invade Ukraine. But by Finland now joining NATO, he ended up with a NATO neighbor on the border of Russia. Yeah. And, and you don't really see a lot of statements about it coming from Moscow either, right? It's more or less silent. Um Sweden as well actually joining at the same yeah. time as Finland. That is crazy. They've been neutral since 19, at least nineteen fourteen, and they they helped tremendously in the reaching troops and refugees in Second World War. But now then they've been neutral for a century or, or more. Mm. More, it's crazy that they decided to step out of that neutrality now. Well, it's crazy, but it's understandable as well. Yeah. To some extent, that they. You know, they perceive a danger that wasn't there before and not even there in the post-war Soviet period either. That there was no real danger of further Russian encroachment, even though they'd fought a major war in 39 and 40 in the case of Finland. So, you know, I see that these states as, as looking at, at Russia in a, in a different kind of way because they no longer understand what Russia's goals are and, and where they're going to end. Mm. And Putin is probably the only politician in Russia who does know, who who has some idea of what the goal is. Because it seems 
incredible that Russian state today is capturing territories and putting up Russian flags on the basis of the fact that these territories were taken by Catherine the Great in the in the late 18th century. Yeah. I mean, how can you how can you think like that in the 21st century? And um, so, we spoke about this. Uh, sorry again for interrupting you, but we spoke mm-hmm. about this in our Ukraine crisis episode last March, where where you know the Cossack revolt in the say around the same era before Catherine that they binded themselves to Russia and made a contract forever and that's also one of the reasons Putin uses to justify his invasion mm-hmm. that a treaty with the Cossacks that was made like centuries ago that it's it's ridiculous and I said this before and I said this again it's like saying that the Roman Empire has the right to half of Europe and half of England <laughs> until up until Scotland it's ludicrous to say that this treaty that was made centuries ago is still valid now. I agree. I agree. But this is this is the way Russian leadership seems to think at the moment, or at least Putin seems to think, and the rest of them are kind of dragged along with him. Um, even people like Lavrov, who seemed to me to be quite a sensible diplomat in his earlier career, but now seems to be totally allied with Putin in order to keep his position. So... What does it mean? I mean, I think in the case of, of Ukraine, um, you know, you could make a more modern case that, in fact, Yanukovych was forced out of office by by the Maidan in 2013-14. He ended up leaving office when Ukraine could have accepted a European brokered plan that would have left him president till the next election in 2014, and then he would have left. And I think that what happened in 2014 in in uh, Ukraine was a catalyst for Putin's more violent mode of thinking. I mean, this is what forced well forced him. He decided to annex Crimea outright in in March of 2014, followed by fomenting a war in the Donbass. And again, I think it was a case of how much of of the Ukrainian eastern state could be taken by pro-Russian separatists with Russian weapons and at times Russian military engagement as well. And, you know, and then I think, well, you know, what really did happen in Ukraine? I mean, ultimately, yes, there were some far-right forces in Ukraine in 2014. There's no question about it. And you see the flags to Bandera that were... Just not not to the extent that Putin claims that the government... No, they never formed formed part of the government. They never had a decisive role in government and not a single president of Ukraine, including Yushchenko, really could be said to be far right Mm. or embracing these kind of principles back then. And it's ironic that it's, again, it's ironic that it calls them fascist government because Putin, Putin but Zelensky himself is Jewish so it's kind of yeah you know. I mean it's it's far-fetched and I think it's obvious it's far-fetched because the real goal is not to denazify or demilitarize Ukraine it's to control Ukraine and you can only control Ukraine by removing the government that is is definitely pro-western and would like to join the EU and and at the moment would like to join NATO I mean, Ukraine would join tomorrow, I imagine, if it was given the chance to join NATO. So Putin, as you suggested earlier, has has really indulged in a kind of 
self-prophecy. I mean, he's created this situation that's actually made it worse. He's unified Ukraine. He's pushed countries into NATO that weren't thinking about joining NATO. And he's polarized the rest of the world. And at the moment, I would say the real, you know, the reason why Putin is and Russia are managing to survive is because they've had backing from countries like China, which have taken up the slack of Russian energy resources and which the West has refused to engage in any meaningful way because they see China as the principal enemy, actually, if you really look at where the United States is coming from. And how long that will last, I, I don't know, because I think ultimately, if United States, the EU and China agree that this war is a bad thing and has to be stopped, then Putin's really got no place to turn. I mean, there's no major power in the world otherwise that would back Putin. And I see Russia, therefore, as being in a in a let's say a weaker position. I mean, I don't see it as being on the brink of collapse. I mean, a bit like 1991, I don't see that. But I think a series of defeats in the war could see some serious questions raised about, about the leadership. We've already seen questions about the military leadership, but you could see questions about the political leadership emerging as well. But at the moment, Russia's not, it's not on a military, it's not on a war footing. It's simply talking about an operation and recruiting, you know, conscripting i should say maybe a third of what it could conscript as far as troops are concerned you see so many people fleeing russia right now into armenia georgia and the the countries the few countries that they are allowed in and it's they're losing so many good good people that should work for the government that should been helpful to stabilize russia to help all and all these people are now fleeing because they don't want to be conscripted into the russian army for another wave mm. of globalization yeah this this fear of conscription i mean the conscription to date has been fairly selective it's mainly people who are from the regions of russia often ethnically non-russians but also people who are from the poorer stratum of society that cannot afford higher education i mean if people go into universities then in theory, if they remain there, let's say they go on to higher degrees, as long as they stay until they're 27 years old, they're not conscripted into the army. And I think there are people who can afford to do that, but the vast majority cannot. So you get these people who've got no place to go, so they go. They have to do their military service for one year. Now, I, I, I was watching, yeah, so, and Russian propaganda really tried to market these people as well, like, and I was watching you know, this this Russian YouTuber I follow. He's really more or less anti-Putin, and he wrote he's told told about this Russian propaganda where you really just see them playing on the poor people. Like, oh, I used to be so poor, I can't afford anything, but now I'm back in the Russian army. I can drive a car now. I have my own car, and I don't move out of the house and have my own I'll support my own family because I'm in the army. Yeah, yeah. And you get a lot of stories from Ukraine, especially from the early part of the war when these troops first arrived and they're wandering around stealing stuff and looking for food. Uh, I mean, no clue why they're actually in these in this war, why why they were sent into a, a war zone. Um, it's it's pathetic and it's sad. And it suggests that 
as a total lack of planning, but also a desire not to have a major impact on, let's say, the cities of Moscow and Leningrad, the centers of Soviet, uh, sorry, centers of Russian power, mm-hmm. um, to keep sort of the middle classes, the sort of large middle class group of Russia away from the scene of the war so that life can go on, businesses can carry on as usual, and no one really knows much about the war other than, you know, you might get a paragraph in the paper or an item on the news about some crime Ukraine's committed, but you won't get a, you know, a detailed view of the war like you did in the 1990s in Chechnya, because then, or or even earlier in Afghanistan, because then you would see a real reaction, I think, among Russians. So you've got this kind of artificial situation where news is completely controlled by the regime. It's also very effective i think russian use of social media is quite sophisticated and therefore they've managed to penetrate large swathes of society to accept their view of the war and and what and what's taking place and it's something that could only work i believe for a limited period the richer russians ironically the oligarchs and people in that stratum do have access to different information. I mean, they're the ones who would see the realities of the war. I mean, they're the people who are most likely to travel to to Europe and places and um, and see things for themselves, um, or or even to Georgia, for example, where you where you get a different perspective. So, I don't, you know, I don't really see it as long lasting. I cannot. I see this as sort of the end period of Vladimir Putin. You know, whether it's because of his political views or his or his medical situation but i do also think that the system is created in russia is not going to collapse in other words it's it's got a certain stability it would just require a different form of leadership i don't think you would see a sort of reversion back to the late 1980s Mm. when russia was i would say was becoming democratic i wouldn't say it was perhaps not the sort of democracy you might see in in Norway, but nevertheless, much more democratic than any previous time. Mm. Now we've gone back to something recognizable, I would say, for most Russian people, where you've got a very powerful leader and people rely on him, trust him, Mm. because he he is trusted. And he's taking them down a path, really, where it's hard to see the end of it. And I want to ask because what 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 the, because when the war started, we all thought it was would be over in two to two or three days, and we could already see after day one that Russian tanks in the capital. So what would what would you think was a failure of doing a blitzkrieg, if you will, for which Putin was intending to do? What 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 where did he fail with the mobilization? Well, I think it it completely misread the views of Ukrainians, the situation in Ukraine. And I think he looked back to 2014 when, let's say, at the Battle of Ilovaisk in August 9, uh, 2014, where the Ukrainian army just disintegrated and believed that Ukrainians were, in fact, waiting to be, quote-unquote, liberated by a Russian invasion, that most Ukrainians didn't like what was happening 
um, not just the Russians, but those with nostalgia for the past, those who felt that Ukraine was going in the wrong direction. And this was simply wrong. Most Ukrainians were highly loyal to the Ukrainian state. And even though you, you had periods in Ukraine where you had uprisings and disputes, um, almost endlessly during the Poroshenko presidency of 2014 to 19. But it didn't override the general sentiment that supported Ukrainian independence. So this is why I think Putin actually united Ukraine. And a figure like Zelensky, who came to power based on the unpopularity of the previous president for the most part, because he was he was a virtual unknown, and his popularity was around 28, 30%. He will be remembered as a war hero for sure. He and is. World began. Yeah. yeah, he's now the most popular president Ukraine's ever had. And not only that, he's also a major world figure. Hmm. And in, in the United States, he's also the most popular states person worldwide. You know, this is a dramatic change from Ukrainian presidents of the past. And you've got... Um, no matter what Zelensky says now, you know, and sometimes he talks nonsense or something that really doesn't make a lot of sense. But whatever he says is taken extremely seriously. Well, and he has become a figure who will always be remembered in Ukraine as the, as, a, as the president who defended Ukraine. He's like a Winston Churchill type figure in the UK or de Gaulle in France, for example. Is that kind of stature. Well, you know, and this is this is something that isn't going going to change. And even if Putin... You know, even if somehow Russia succeeded in this war, which I, I cannot really see happening, um, it wouldn't change anything. Ukrainians would still have guerrilla warfare against whatever regime is imposed on them. And it would go on for years and years and years. So there's nothing to be gained, in my view, uh, from capturing Kiev, which is obviously the main goal of the war. I would say that perhaps... The situation in the Donbass is more complex because this has now been in place for nearly nine years. And you have, you have regimes that, however illegal, have entrenched themselves quite deeply. And at the same time, the population of Donbass perceives Ukrainians as, as the people who bombed them in 2014. You know, they're looking back to that period of warfare and they maybe more difficult to assimilate. I think it can be done. But I think Ukraine will have to make several concessions to that region if it wants to have long-term stability. But um, as, for, as for Russia, I think ultimately they will have to leave Donbass. Whether they will regain Crimea or not, I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, they, they've controlled Crimea right now. But whether they will re retain it, I don't know. I think um, it would be very difficult for Ukraine to to take Korea, Crimea and then keep it. It's very difficult for Russia to keep it in the long term when most of the supplies come from Ukraine. It's a natural route for supplies. You had this sort of feeble bridge that the Ukrainians blew up for a time. Um, but basically, Crimea is dependent on control of the Black Sea fleet. Uh, Black Sea and the Azov Seas in the east. Um, I don't know. But I, I don't think this war will succeed in any meaningful way for Russia.
And and I have one final question before we have to run up run up here. But where do you see with all the sanctions going on in Russia and the companies leaving Russia, and with Putin's more or less failure to to annex Ukraine, where do you see Russia going in the future? And I predicted this in our Ukraine crisis. But do you think I I had a feeling that this Russia would be more or less like post nineteen eighteen. Germany after World War One with all the sanctions going on and you have you know poverty again. I'd kind of predict that the Adolf Hitler like character, not maybe not in fascist sense, but you know will rise up to go against this. But what do you, what do you think? Where do you see Russia going in the future? Well, as an historian, you know you look back to periods in the past. I mean, for example, when the line of succession, going back to Rurik, died out. And you had what what the Russians call the time of troubles. Hmm. Uh, went on for for quite a long time, almost two decades. And it could be a period like that. Or it could be a period of, let's say, frozen conflict. I mean, Russia's already left frozen conflicts in different areas like Georgia, like Moldova with the Transnistria region, for example, that goes all the way back to the early 1990s, it could end up like that, where you don't really have any long-term solution. You've got a stalemate Mm. where neither side can actually succeed and nothing changes for some time, in which case you could see Putin or whoever succeeds Putin remaining in in power, that the system wouldn't change dramatically. If Russia experiences a serious defeat you know if the russian army is completely wiped out in ukraine or or the united states supplies further weapons that are much more oriented towards hitting russia rather than defending ukraine which will be another escalation altogether i don't think it would happen if that happens then i think we could see something like you suggested that russia would be in a period of chaos and not only Russia, but, you know, Belarus would probably go through the same thing. So would different regions of Russia. So it's it's unpredictable, quite frankly. It's not something that any, any analyst would really want to predict um, because you may end up looking completely stupid yeah. a few years later. But I would say one thing, and that is that the situation as it is now cannot exist indefinitely. That is... Putin's war aims and war on this kind of scale because no matter what victories they're experiencing Ukraine has already got an economic and demographic crisis that can only be addressed by significant help from the EU and and, and other Western powers and Russia cannot sustain this level in terms of the missiles that it's using up the conscription may be raised, let's say, to 100,000, sorry, to a million from 300,000, then this would have a big impact on Russian society, just like the Afghan war did. And yet, I don't think Russia can succeed in any meaningful way unless it increases conscription and goes on to a full war footing. Um, It's not done that, and I don't think think, uh, Putin wants to do that. So it's difficult. It's a very sad situation for me that it's come to this. You've come to this kind of violent solution to resolve all 
your 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 goals and that is that is what's happened how what is your thoughts on the use of nuclear weapons in Jan Stoltenberg has has made it clear that he shouldn't even think about using them but i I read somewhere as well that even if Putin pr- presses the button, it's not necessarily like the United States go directly there's someone in between that might not want to use nuclear weapons that he has some stationed. There's Putin, then there's what some other guys, and then they decide if they should. Is that true, or is that? But do you think you ever really amount to using nuclear weapons? I think it would be a last resort. It would be something to be used if the situation looked disastrous, and Putin felt that there were threats to his own power. As a result, that you may see the usage of a tactical nuclear weapon against Ukraine. I don't see any possibility right now of use of strategic or long-range missiles um, by Russia, which would, I mean, it would be tantamount to declaring the end of the world. It would be um, much more than escalation. But the use of a tactical nuclear missile has been discussed several times by people in the Russian leadership, perhaps irresponsibly. It's not something that I think they would do simply because the response from the West would also be escalated as well. I'm sure that there's growing frustration with how far the Americans are prepared to come to the aid of Ukraine with weapons such as Patriot missiles and HIMARS and things of that nature and and what is going to be the limit to to U.S. aid. Mm. But at the moment, Russia is not going to run out of missiles yet. It has a lot of tanks. It It has the equipment to keep continuing fighting for some time. So I see I see this war is dragging out and it's it's sort of symbolized by the slow progress of the war in the Donbass, this campaign to occupy the town of Bakhmut, for example, has been going on now for about three months. And if Russia takes three months, let's say, to occupy one town held by the Ukrainian army, it's going to take a long, long time just to occupy Donbass, let alone try another assault on Kiev. And even then, it may not succeed because Russia, can, uh, Ukraine can still counterattack. So I think it will be a, a long, a lengthy affair. It's a matter of wills, as I'm concerned that Putin believes there's a lack of commitment in the West to long-term support of Ukraine. I don't think it's true. I think the West is committed to Ukraine, but there is a certain instability in the United States society, uh, instilled not least by the presidency of Donald J. Trump, who has opposed the the war? Uh, um, he has opposed Western support for Ukraine, for example. Yeah. So Putin is thinking ahead a little bit to twenty twenty four. In twenty twenty four, he has a vital election himself. In twenty twenty three, United States will elect a new president. Yeah. If that president remains Joe Biden, then I think the situation looks worse for Russia. But if it once again you get Trump or someone of the Trump supporters who would take power in the United States, that may change the situation. It may undermine European worldwide support for Ukraine.
And of course, that's a, that's a nice question last time, but this is sort of really a last question. I, I had so much more I want to talk about, but he can't do everything I'm afraid. But how long do you see Putin remaining in power, even after post post Ukraine crisis? There must be somebody in the government who who kind of is fed up with him. And do you think there is some assassination thought of assassinating him or assassination thought that is kind of planning in army in the army to get rid of Putin or such things? I don't think so yet. I mean, I think Putin is still very popular. Mm. There's no question of that. I mean, he's not the action man anymore that he was back in the um, early 2000s. But nevertheless, uh, Putin is not yet um, falling in popularity. At least I've not seen any dramatic drop in his popularity, which means that he's answering the needs right now of the majority of Russians. Um, things have to change quite dramatically. The big question is his health. And that's not something I'm I'm equipped to speak about because I'm not a medical expert and I simply don't know the background. But his general appearance is quite concerning. I mean, he's very bloated. He clings to his table. His knees are shaking. He looks, he looks weak compared to how he used to look. So that may end up being some kind of a factor, even though I have no idea what illness he's suffered from or is suffering from. But... He's 70. You know, that's quite an an elderly age for a Russian. I mean, it's it's beyond their average lifespan. He's been in power, you know, with a sort of brief period anyway, for more than 20 years. In fact, you could say almost a quarter of a century he's been in power. It takes its toll. You know, it really takes its toll. I look at Lukashenko in Belarus and see him trying to walk down the steps of an airplane and how long it takes him to do it it's just physical deterioration it's a natural phenomenon putin's not going to be there forever and it's simply a fact uh, ironically of course the president of the united states is 10 years older than putin um but at the same time you know things will change i, no I think it's the amount of time you've been in power that is health deteriorating there's a difference that joe biden has been as long in power that is, I don't know if that has an impact, but it's, it's the, you know, I think that has something to do with it. That Putin has been basically in power since two thousand for twenty, somewhat years now, and that kind of can take a toll on your health. I think. I think so. I mean, and I was looking the other day at the, you know, the oldest serving world leaders, and I forget who it was, but there's one of the African presidents that's, that's way ahead. Um, but Nazarbayev has now stepped down. Um, Lukashenko is still there. He. He's been in power since 1994. So you're looking at almost 30 years now in, in Belarus, uh, while Ukraine's had six presidents so far, right? They seem to change every five years. But it's not something that I think is is going to be a long-term future for Russia. They've got to think about Russia after Putin. And not only Russia, but the Western world has to think about Russia after Putin and what it might entail. And in the long term, how are Russia and its neighbors, particularly Ukraine, going to survive, you know, next to each other? It's it's really not something you can ignore. I spoke to someone yesterday on a webinar about the same thing. You know, Canada, for example, we cannot ignore United States. It's like United States coughs, we get a cold is what mm. the phrase used to be. And it's the same with Russia and Ukraine. They may be at war. 
And it may be that Ukrainians think we will never again have anything to do with Russia. They're our enemy now till time immemorial. But they're also a neighbor. And somehow this issue has to be resolved in the minds of Ukrainian and Russian leaders. And until you get that, I don't see any kind of peace breaking out in the in this, this entire region. So there will be change, but it's a question of how quickly and how the war situation will will develop. Yeah. <laughs> it's an I, I, yeah. indecisive note to end on, yeah. I can, I can easily speak another hour about this, but uh, I don't think your listeners will be tired eventually, but it was a pleasure to have you on and talk about the making of modern Russia. Before I go with you, like I said in the beginning, you have a book on the Euromaidan protests and the slash revolution. Where, where can people find it? Should they be interested in reading your work? Well, let me let me just interject there, because in, in 1922, I published two books. Uh, one is on the war in the Donbass, which was an edited book by Central European University Press. And the other is a book on Stalin, which was published by Roman uh, uh, Rowan and Littlefield in in Maryland in the United States. They're my most recent. And prior to that, I published a book called Understanding U- Ukraine and Belarus in 2020. So I've done, I actually published four more books since that Euromaidan one, which was only an edited book, um, that I think are probably more significant, to be frank. Now, you have a sort of Twitter, so where can people find you on Twitter? Should they be interested in following you there? Uh, I have a Twitter account called at Dr. Marples, and that's not for doctor, it's for my name, David Roger, at Dr. Marples. And I'm also have a Facebook account as well under the same name, Dr. Marples. So uh, I, uh, David R. Marples, excuse me, on Facebook. So that's that's where I could be found. Thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you on. We are, this has been with that age 12. We are available on YouTube, Spotify. Yeah, wherever you can find us, Apple Podcasts. If you have Apple Podcasts, if you listen, like this episode, please consider writing a review. That would help us out a lot. We are also on Twitter now, under that age 12. So please follow us there on Instagram, under the same name as the podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe. Check out some of our other episodes. We should definitely have something of your liking, I hope. This has been that age 12. My name is Alan, and I'll see you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.